tonight the sermon is entitled The Cost of a Life on Mission. So if you're there in John chapter 12, we're going to read together verses 23 through 26. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Also, just as a side note to everyone who notices that the lights level every time we begin, we only have one more week where the room is set up like this. Listen to the students, they told me, so it'll be fun. Uh, Anyway, turn our attention to the scriptures. John chapter 12, verses 23 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. This has been the reading of God's word. Praise him for speaking it for us. Here's the word together. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight very much aware of the fact that life is short. Heaven and hell are real. And the consequences of the way that we respond to you will directly determine where we will spend eternity. But even much more than that or with that in mind, the way that the Christ follower lives their life in light of that pressing reality speaks volumes of how much we really believe or trust in what your word has to say. And Father, as we consider the cost tonight of what it looks like to live on mission, help us not to be fearful of what we may lose, but hopeful in what we will gain as a result of living on mission for you. I think of our friends around the city. We ask that you would watch over them tonight, different brothers from all across the city. Think of our friends at Ridgecrest, at Second Baptist, at Grace Way, at Cherry Street, the Parkwest, all of the different collegiate ministries in our city that are gearing up for another fall. We ask, God, that you would help us as the church, small C Catholic, together, universal, try to reach college students in this city. And Father, we're asking that you would bring revival. And we're okay if you bring revival down the road from us. We're just asking that it might catch on us on fire on the way there. So God, just birth inside of us a burning desire to see students, uh, young adults, 18 to 25, come to know you as a result of our faithfulness to live on mission in this city. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. You guys may be seated. Some of you are familiar with the term cost-benefit analysis. Now, the minute you say cost-benefit analysis to a room that's not a bunch of insurance agents, everybody's eyes begin to roll into the back of their heads, and rightfully so, because cost-benefit analysis is a process businesses use to analyze decisions. A business or analyst sums up the reward for a certain investment versus the subsequent risk of that investment. Um, we do, we know insurance and we know many other Different businesses will use cost-benefit analysis to make decisions to track what they're going to do. Now, before you 
your eyes literally roll back in your head, and you're like, where is this illustration going? I just want to stop and say everyone in this room constantly does cost-benefit analysis. It may not be formal. Now, some of you are that type of person. You know who you are, and your friends know who you are, that literally, like, to make even the smallest decision of where you're going to spend your money for lunch today, you weighed the benefit of uh, the cost and the analysis that comes with it. Uh, you, everybody makes those. You make cost-benefit analysis every time you eat Taco Bell. Is the benefit of eating this food, the, the delight enjoying it, going to be worth the risk of this ruining the rest of my day because I can't get escape the restroom? Everybody makes cost-benefit analysis, and really cost-benefit analysis happens based on what you value the most. I mean, realistically, that's how cost-benefit analysis works in your life. Um, You make the cost-benefit analysis of, is the cost of me putting myself out there to ask her out on a date worth the risk of her laughing in my face? and saying, are you serious? No way. Or even worse, you're like a brother to me. I mean, we all know that cost-benefit analysis, the, the risk is high, but also the reward potentially is high. And we're making those decisions all the time. You make them with dates, you make them with jobs, you make them with degrees. Uh, this happens all the time with college students. College students, a lot of the time, when you're picking a degree, make this cost-benefit analysis. What is the easiest degree that I can do that will produce the most income for me down the line. That's normally how someone who has no idea what they're going to do with their life uh, when they go to college makes a decision about their degree. Then there's other people who, like, they like the idea of um, there's high risk, high reward. Like, high risk to uh, go to school to become a doctor in the sense that there's a good chance you could flunk out and not make it. There's also the chance that you could graduate and kill someone uh, versus all of the potential earnings. So we, we make these decisions all the time. In fact, we make them split second. Um, they're often not really thought out per se unless they become something that's going to affect us for the rest of our lives. But here's what I think happens a lot of the time. If we're being honest and we're talking about the idea of living on mission and if we evaluate the majority of Christians, and let's just be uncharitable and say all of them outside of this room, because we're all Johnny Super Christians. Everybody out there is the, the Christians who, who aren't very sold out to Jesus. I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, and I hope that you pick that up. But what I'm saying is a lot of Christians make cost-benefit analysis based on what does it look like to follow Christ, meaning I'm willing to follow Christ as far as or as long as or as seriously as it provides a reward for me so meaning i'm okay and we see this right in the sense of late night television preachers which i don't think the majority of you are watching i hope not um that's just really weird like there's like a hundred things on netflix that are equally as damning to hell as whatever that guy is saying with his two million dollar diamond studded cufflinks like there's begging for money for the nations like it's terrible so what is ironic about that is though is there's a whole generation of people so-called christians who make a cost-benefit analysis i will follow christ in as far as he 
rewards me for following him. The name it and claim it. The yeah, that, thank you. This kind of idea of we're just moving along and tracing Jesus and whatever benefit it brings me, that's where I'm willing to go. And so the minute that that Christian begins to encounter suffering, they're far more likely to, to peel out. And, and realistically, one could make the case that they're unregenerate, right? And, and we don't like to talk about people being unsaved that claim to know Christ, but Jesus does, and so if Jesus is okay with that, I, I, I'm comfortable with it, because he talks about the sower goes out to sow seed, and uh, the seed begins to take root, but encounters obstacles or difficulties, and withers away and dies. Jesus talks about that a lot, and for whatever reason, Christians are uncomfortable saying, perhaps that person's not a believer, because the minute they begin to not get what they want, Jesus isn't as attractive as he once was. A great book that I've begun to read is a book by Dean Isera talking about reaching what we refer to in the theology world as nominal Christians, which is a kind way of saying people who like the label Christian because it brings something for them economically in their community, but really outside of that have no knowledge of Christ. And you say, David, why are you talking about this? Because I think if we're going to legitimately, we've, we've spent all summer talking about this need to live on mission. But I don't think that if we come to the end of the summer and we don't, as we turn the corner for whatever the next season of life is, whether this is the first semester that you're um, out of college and you're, you're living and working and, and you're not going to school full time, or, or maybe for you this is, uh, you're, you're one step closer to graduating. For some of you that means that's this coming May. For those of you, you're hoping that it's sometime in the next five to seven years. Wherever you are in that particular spot, I'm going to challenge you tonight, and I think Jesus is more importantly going to challenge you tonight, to make sure that you really evaluated the cost of what it means to live on mission and, and, and make sure that you're willing to dive in at that level, and if you're not, to evaluate whether or not you even know him. So tonight, just three words that I think are going to help us to count the cost for what it looks like to live on mission. And I don't think there are any three words that the majority of people are running around going, when it comes to counting the cost, these are the words that I want to hear. But I think if we understand them rightly, we'll see them for what they are. And that first word is death. Look at verse 23. Jesus here is answering what's coming for him and, and, and what m he must do. But at the same time, he is pointing to what the disciples and Christians after them will also have to do. So there's a dualism that Jesus is utilizing here. He says in verse 23, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus is using an agricultural metaphor here to point to what is happening or what is about to happen to him. 
we, we know that the book of John is going to rapidly make its way to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We, we know that's what John is arguing for, right? We get to the end of John, and John tells us he's written these things that we may know Christ and the power of him crucified. That's John is pushing us to see Jesus rightly for who he is, and he does that here. Jesus, specifically in a language he's using, is pushing us to understand what he's doing, but also what you and I must do if we're going to be true followers of Jesus Christ. He points to this agricultural metaphor. He says that if they, if we desire much fruit to, to take place in, in life, just period, Jesus says, for him, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. Think about the implications of this in regards to Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. No death of Christ, no possibility for our redemption. Christ remains by himself in a status that we can't get to. But because he dies goes into the ground, and bears fruit through his resurrection, many of us can claim his righteousness, not on what we do, but the fact that it's been placed on us, or to use a great theological word, imputed to us. It's been placed on us by the Father because of the work of the Son. We've been imputed righteousness. It's been placed on us. We can experience new life because of that not because of what we do but because of what christ does the disciples would have specifically philip and andrew but those listening to jesus would have heard this and immediately understood death produces life when it comes to seed that that one little seed dies to itself, but in the process of dying gives birth or bears much fruit through its life. One of the primary ways that we model what Christ has done is by us dying to ourselves and living for Christ. And when we talk about living on mission, we're not talking about just this idea of, well, let's all be missionaries. That's what normally happens when you talk about living on mission. People are like, well, I guess I got to get in a boat and go to Africa. Well, if you don't have to get on a boat, you can get on a plane. Like, it's pretty simple now. People are like, I don't want to live on mission because living on mission means I'm going to have to move to a different country learn a new language, and have to impact all of these people that I don't know and I don't like in a place that's hot and I don't like to be hot. The Christian church has done a really poor job of differentiating living on mission and being a missionary. Because being a missionary looks different depending on how we understand it. Not the purpose of what we're talking about this evening. Living on mission means living with a prophetic edge in the place where God has placed you. 
And, and when you say giver, what do you think? Just prophetic edge, great, David can come and say, hey, go on down to the coast. No, he just prays for a miracle. You know, people are all over the place, and I already am stressed out by a large crowd, so he just prays for rain. No, I'm not talking about that type of prophetic. I'm talking about this prophetic edge, this witness because of who you are and what God has done for you and the fact that you live that out by dying to yourself and saying, you know what, on my job, at school, wherever I am, I'm going to live boldly for Christ with this prophetic edge, this witness about me. I'm not the weird guy at work that's like, here, you don't know about Jesus, here's 87 tracks. That will clearly explain to you, if you just read them from 1 to 87, how you might know Christ. But I'm talking about the prophetic edge of a person who is so convinced that what Jesus Christ has done, they've died to their own self-desires, this idea of cutting everybody out, this idea of climbing up the ladder with as many stabs in the back as possible to get to the top so you can rule the roost. I'm... If you're a Christ follower who wants to live on mission, you have to reject that mentality. Because to live on mission means I'm living in a way where when somebody's life falls apart, the person they know in the office that was helping them is the person who's boldly living for Christ and who's experienced deep suffering, but yet who's living for the love of Jesus. The person who doesn't live like their grades are the most defining characteristic about them or their relational status is the most defining characteristic about them, or their athletic ability, or their video game ability, or their Twitch followers, their Instagram likes, or the amounts of retweets they get by famous people. Dying to self means I don't care about those things anymore. They don't rule me. They don't govern me. They don't drive me. itself means the way that Christ bears much fruit in me is me getting out of the way and making much of him in everything and him handling every situation. That I don't wait until I win the Super Bowl to get up on a stage and tell everybody how much I love Jesus, while at the same time embracing the thought that I'm the greatest of all time. Because they somehow instilled that talent level in them. You're like, that's stupid. Right, but you brag about stuff that nobody cares about. And that nobody's even aware of. And so do I. On mission means I'm dying to myself so that others can see what Christ has done in me, to me, and for me. Dying to self so that people can see what Christ has done in me, to me, and for me. So just ask you, you know this is coming. Those of you who are regulars, you know there's this always question is coming at the end of every text. We ask the question every week. Why? Because we need to meditate on what God might be asking us to change. And if we never stop to ask these types of questions, how do we ever 
drastically be changed and made to be more like him. So are you in the regular habit of dying to yourself to make much of Jesus? And if you answer yes, then I would say, okay, tell me three specific ways that that's happening. Not one, not two, not three, and yes doesn't cut it. How many of you have read your Bible this week? Everybody in the room's like, well, I've read the cover of it, so I have. Well, how's it changed you? I don't know. I mean, have you really read it? If it's not changing you, if it's not affecting the way that you live, why are you reading it? to apply when we ask the question, are you in the regular habit of dying to to yourself to make much of Jesus? If the answer to that question is yes, how? And you don't have to answer to me. I'm not going to go stand in the lobby and go, okay, and one by one, you come out, I want to hear your three ways. It's like your exit paper to get out of here. It's your exit ticket for all of you educators in the room tonight. That's your exit ticket. Write down three things uh, of how you're dying to yourself and you've got to prove it to me. You don't, we got to get past this, okay? As a church, as a Christian organization, as a denomination, as Baptists in general, you do not have to justify your actions to me. You don't have to answer these questions to me. Ultimately, these questions are designed to help you ask them in light of God's expectation of us. So the better question is, can you provide an exit ticket for God that he's not like me? Because guess what? You can't. You can fool me. You can tell me three ways that aren't true at all, which is terrible because you're one lying. And, and to your line about living for Jesus, this has got to be like double jeopardy. Like you're for sure going away for a long time if you do that and like the criminal did. You can't fool God when you say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm dying to self every day. God's like, I want you every day. No, you're not. So if you would be honest then, what are the areas of your life where you seem unable to die to yourself? Could be a much more revealing question. I don't like it, and I didn't like writing it, and I still don't like asking it. Because if I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, what are the areas of my life where I seem unable to die to myself? And then what steps are you going to take to see this change in your life? ask this question a lot and I think maybe it just becomes rote like what steps are you going to take to see this change in your life but realistically like isn't that a good question to ask ourselves about everything in a Christian life because which one of us wants to go to a doctor who comes in and is like hey by the way um, you have stage 4 cancer and you're like okay and the doctor's like best of luck I'll see you uh, at your next appointment a year from now two years from now if you're like me 18 years from now that we'd be like you're the worst doctor on the face of the planet i i'm like doc you're not leaving this room until we figure out a strategy to change this to fight here's the problem inside of the christian world the biggest cancer on the inside of us is our fight daily with sin And many of us acknowledge that that cancer is there, yet do nothing to take any steps towards cutting it out of our body. And we just let it grow. like, And we just act like it's not there. If I walked in this room 
with a hole literally in my head. And one of you said to me, you have a hole in your head. I'm like, I know. Okay. And you're like, but it's not like that could get infected, bad thing could touch it, and literally eat your brain. Like, that's not good. And I'm like, it's fine. I'm being honest, and I, I think that's how a lot of us look at living on mission in regards to our own personal holiness. We've lost our prophetic edge because we don't want to make any changes to where we are currently struggling to die to self. That pet sin, that pet thing that people are like, eh, it might be sinful. That, that thing that isn't a bad thing, but it's become a bad thing because it's taken the place of God in your life. What steps are you going to take to die to self in that area? I told you there are three words. Word number one is death. Word number two, not any better. I guess it's a little bit better than death. Uh, But this is the second word, sacrifice. Look at verse number 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There is a legitimate sacrifice that needs to come to following Christ. And beyond just dying to ourself, it's the idea that our life is not our own. We like to operate like this is my life. I'm in control. I call the shots. I'm the one who makes all the decisions. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do when I graduate college and I get a job and I make a lot of money and I get married and we have some kids because you can't have a kid by yourself. And then I'm going to get these things and I'm going to retire at this age and I'm going to do All of these things, you've mapped out your entire life and you haven't given one thought to the fact that your life, especially if you are in Christ, does not belong to you. We love to live like we're in control. We love to live like this is mine. And who dares to cross me and tell me this isn't my life? How dare you tell me I can't live for this thing or that thing? How dare you tell me I can't have that accomplishment or do this? And we hear all of that. That's immediately what we hear. When someone says, this is not your life, immediately we begin to say things like, how dare you tell me I can't live my life that way? But again, when we are confronted by teachings where we're told this isn't your life, and we balk at the teacher, we're not balking ultimately at the teacher. We're we're balking at the physical representation of God speaking to us. Because when that when that pastor, when that preacher, when that Bible teacher says, This life is not your own, you've been bought with a price, he's not speaking as some self-help guru. He's quoting the very word of God. And we balk at this idea that my life has to be my own. But God's word tells us that it's not. And Jesus is like, hey, you want a surefire way to make sure that your life goes forward? Live for this life and not the one behind it. You want a surefire way to to make sure that 
don't experience what we often term as God's best for us is to live for this life over the life to come. We get caught up because we're, this is the way we think, right? We, we think in terms of this life and tomorrow and the next week. And we can even, for whatever ability we might have, even in our mid-20s to understand that we've lived some sort of life or we've got some life to come. But this idea of there's another life to come where we'll live forever and never die, it doesn't take much to rattle our precise brain because we can't we don't have that concept because God's created us as creatures who operate inside of time. We have no capacity to operate outside of time. God can operate outside, inside, outside, inside of time like that. And for us, we're like, even that you're like, who is it that dares offer me up those gumbo? Because we don't. doing everything that you want to do and just kind of this type of attractional model of church where we just kind of come to, to church and for 45 minutes some guy's going to tell you how great you are. Your generation is fighting back against that. I tell people all the time, the three groups that are currently growing in the world of religion are Orthodox Jews, Orthodox Roman Catholics, and Orthodox Protestants. Because a whole new generation is going, I don't want your fluff anymore. I want to know what I'm really supposed to believe and press into that. Can I just encourage you to to, to continue that? To con- continue to be people who are going to press into what it really looks like to follow Jesus? To be people who say, I'm going to stand on God's word alone and I'm going to press into it and, and I'm going to live for him at all times and he calls the shots and where he tells me to go, I'm going to go and what he has for me to do, I'm going to do it. So that means if I'm going to be a a canoe salesman, I'm going to sell canoes for God's glory because he's placed me there and he's calling the shots. And if you get to sell canoes, I want to come and watch you. And I promise you, I'll think about buying a canoe. I have no desire to ride in a canoe. I have no desire to own a canoe. But if that's what God's called you to do, I want to be the pastor who supports you and gets somebody else to buy a canoe. So I'll bring that for sale to you. Those doors for you. It's like, 
be faithful now. Be faithful where you are now. Work your job for God's glory and let Him decide where you're going to go next. And quit trying to figure everything out. Guys and girls. Girls, you get a bad rap. Because you guys are like the super planners. You've been planning your wedding since you were the age of two and a half. And like, um, you know, you had uh, uh, bridesmaids dresses picked out in the womb. Like, you're just super uber planners. This is a cover for guys to act like they're not secretly inside freaking out about all the plans they have now. So just kind of a midbuster here, and then let's move on. For all of you that are, all of the girls in here that are freaking out about getting married, I just want to reassure you that there are an equal, if not greater number of guys who are having sex with you in bed. They just do a better job at lying than they do flattering. so that you will be better prepared to serve him for the rest of your life. But that means you've got to press into being faithful now. That means that you've got to say, I don't love this life. I'm going to press into what Christ has for me, regardless of what that looks like. And honestly, even though he was joking, the canoe salesman part sounds pretty nice because that leads that's a direction. Don't press into that just because it's a direction that feels comfortable for you. the shots. I told I, I, I spent a week teaching at boys camp, which if I was Roman Catholic, I would believe that purgatory exists and it's there teaching them for all of eternity until God says, eh, finally made it. But that doesn't exist. So I don't know what this classified boys camp says. Uh, so I gave them, though, this because we were talking about using our words and how do we respond rightly to people. And I just said, hey, listen, let me just give you something that will work in every situation of life. Your words, your actions, what you do. Two options on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. Every situation, you have that. Who sits on the throne? Who's calling balls and strikes? Who's saying, we're going to do this today? Is it God or is it you? And if it's you, are you actually listening to God? Well, that'd be one I'd be calling the shots. That's what I'd do. Yeah, but is it guided and directed by God? Last word, and then we're done. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. How do we continue to live out a life and what we're called to be? How are we supposed to live on mission on a daily basis? Does waking up in the morning with a servant's heart, which I'm going to be real honest with you, after spending the last, Stripped off his armor, 
outer garment. He takes on the form of the literal servants of the day and he walks into the tomb of the father. Here's the guy who, that's got to be awkward as a man for the disciples. Jesus raises them as eggs. They all go one feeds them. They're freaking out. They get scolded about it. So they go back. They're in a tomb. The door is locked. Probably some furniture are hanging up against the door. There's no answer by the money changer. The Bible just tells us the door is locked. Jesus walks into the tomb. <laughs> it's like, you, you, as if that's not going to be scary. You just walk through a door and you still see Jesus. So I got a lot of feet running down my legs. scarred hands, he's got a, a side has been pierced, all of this stuff has happened to him. And you're going, here's a guy who humiliated himself, died, bore the wrath of God, and before he did that, on top of that, he made himself so lowly as to wash my feet. May we all be reminded of that the next time because we'll see the good in his wrath. And may we also remind that be reminded of that every time the opportunity arises for us to serve in some capacity and we pass because life's too busy or life's too hard or I got too many finals. I guarantee you, you will never face a final that would cause you the amount of angst. You may think it has, but until some of you sweat like great drops of sweat, like blood over a bio final like Jesus did, I don't even want to hear it. And then, unless your bio teacher has the ability in that final to pour out the wrath of God for all the sins of all the people who will ever live on this earth, on you, in a final, will you ever have or face anything as difficult as going to the cross? Everything's relative. to serve because we're inconvenient. We refuse to live on mission because we're inconvenient. We refuse to give God everything we have in every area where he's called us to serve because it's inconvenient or too difficult. Why does it simply come to the Philippians chapter 2 and say, every time you find yourself thinking, I'm too busy, this is too much, this is too difficult, this is too hard. He's saying, I think he's expressing the present reality of Everything pales in comparison to the grace of God. So just ask yourself, are you serving at all? And if you aren't serving, like, what excuse do you have? And then realistically, what excuse do you really have? And then realistically, why aren't you serving? And, and serving, here's, I'm going to do a little bit more Mythbusters and I'm done. Serving isn't just every time they need somebody to wash a small woman's feet. Though that is a place in which you serve. Trading in a larger crock pot for a simpler kitchen sink and then helping somebody in our service. And that's always granted in financial favor. Praise God that people can be brought to the gospel gospel doesn't matter if you're poor or 40. 
if you die at 5 or 41, the gospel's only good news if it gets there on time. And we're all just kind of crossing our fingers, hoping that there's some sort of age of accountability that all of those kids that we don't reach will just kind of magically be taken into heaven. served us in going to the cross. He served us by dying a death we couldn't die and living a life we couldn't live and rising from a death that we couldn't rise from. But he also continues to serve us in the fact that he's seated on the right hand of God and he's arguing our righteousness based on his work. Not on our work, but on his. And God the Father listens and honors those who serve the Son. And what better motivation do you and I need to have as people who follow Christ than for our Heavenly Father to honor us, not based on who we are or what we do, but based on who we serve. 